0: Hey, podcast listeners, we got an awesome quarantine episode for you today. Our guest is the founder and CEO of Real Good, which is a complete unified guide to the world of online streaming content with the ability to track and play all your content across 250 streaming sources from a single interface. In today's episode, we get into our guest's frustrating experience of juggling multiple streaming services and how that ultimately led him to launch Real Good. We talk about the build out of the product and how important data management and processing is to product implementation. Later on, we chat about the bet he and his company made on fragmentation in the streaming market, one of the greatest challenges he has faced with this company. What is it like running a remote company in this environment? And more importantly, what's he watching in quarantine? This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself. with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities, typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner, and who invest material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Real Good founder, David Sanderson. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. We're recording this mid late March. So, listeners, whenever this does come out, maybe late March, early April, you can't see us, but we're both in our respective quarantine headquarters. I'm in my bedroom in Los Angeles. David, where are you? San Francisco, in the guest bedroom. Deal. Same thing. So, listeners, much like the podcast we did from Hawaii, where you got to hear roosters the whole time. So, if you get to hear <laughs> toddlers and dogs, it's part of the scene. Founder of Real Good. What's Real Good? The short
1: version of it is we're a streaming service aggregator. And what that means is if you have subscribed to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and HBO, you have to use five different apps. What we do is we put all that into one application for you. So it takes all the shows and movies from whatever combination of streaming services that you use and puts it into one application. So you can. Browse for something new to watch. We'll tell you if there's new episodes of any of your shows across your services, or if a friend recommends a show to you and you search for it, we can tell you, yeah, you already have access to it on one of your services, or no, you don't, but here's where you can go get it.
0: What's the origin story? What was the original inspiration for creating this idea?
1: I moved down to California with Facebook about 10 years ago, I'm originally from Vancouver, Canada, and I was getting my apartment set up down here. I looked at cable and I just thought, I don't really watch live TV that much. Comcast was pretty expensive and it just didn't seem to make sense. And I thought, well, you know, I have Netflix. I watch that primarily anyway. So I didn't bother getting cable and I just watched on demand stuff. But then Homeland came out. So I got Showtime and then Game of Thrones. So I got HBO and then Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So I got Hulu. So I ended up with all these streaming services and I was flipping between them every night. And I was, you know, I was really busy during my time at Facebook. So I'd maybe have like an hour at night where I could watch something and having to deal with this flipping between all these different apps every night, trying to figure out what to watch, or is there a new episode of one of the shows that I like? I thought that was just silly. And for a couple of years, I thought this is an obvious thing. Someone else is going to solve this. I can't wait to be a user of it. But a couple of years went by and no one had done it. And luckily I launched some big products at Facebook and you know, I knew how all of it worked and I had a good sense of how to create the solution. So I left about coming up on about five years ago now.
0: All right. So you leave Facebook is your idea then to, Hey, I'm going to go build this in my guest room. Did you have to partner up with some people? What was the on-ramp? How'd it work?
1: I got lucky with funding right out the gate where a long-term mentor of mine just said that I needed to have lunch with one of her friends. And I did, and I didn't know anything about who he was or or any of the background, but anyway, I just had lunch with this guy and we're just talking. And of course we got talking about this idea that I had and At the end of the lunch, he just said, Look, I want to fund this, I want to invest, I want you to do this thing and I want to be part of it. And at the time I had absolutely no idea about how investing works or any of it. And so luckily he was a very good and like upstanding guy. And so the funding came through very quickly because I just sort of got it right away. And I remember I even said, How does this work when we're looking about valuation? He said, Well, I'm gonna make up a number and you're gonna make up a number and we're gonna be in the middle. So luckily that got squared away pretty quickly, but then With the funding, I remember, yeah, I was sitting in my living room and just was kind of thinking, okay, well, I need to start hiring people. How do I start to get this company formed? And one of the problems was with my Facebook contract, I had a non-solicit agreement. And that was the majority of my network down here. And all the engineers I worked with were at Facebook. So I hunted around and long story short, I actually ended up hiring this guy that I had read, interviewed in a piece about our space who had launched a very successful product, like I said, kind of in our world or the world I was looking to get into. And he would actually be one of the guys behind Popcorn Time, which was a really big. It was to do with Torrance, but it was in a different way. It was trying to solve a similar problem to us of just letting people get to their content. So anyway, I hired him and he really liked working here. And then luckily, sort of over time, he brought in the whole rest of the team there. and That was our very beginning.
0: What year would this been? This would have been spring of 2015. All right. So walk me forward. What's the next steps? And was the original idea kind of the similar vision you have now, or was it a little bit different in the early days?
1: It was a little bit different. It started as three things, and then eventually we boiled it down just to the one. But at the time when I started, mobile was like the name of the game. Mobile first was huge. When I was at Facebook and everywhere, it was just sort of the industry thing of being mobile first. And then social was also very hot at the time. So we kind of followed the times with that where we had a mobile app and it still had some of the streaming stuff and was trying to help people decide what to watch, but it had a big social component to it. So we launched that and we saw success with it. But then when we really looked at the metrics, what we saw was that people were using the what we called the where to watch information, like where they could stream it. We saw them using that very heavily. And at a certain point we decided, look, let's cut the fat here. Let's remove the social stuff. Let's just make it the streaming service aggregator, because that seems to be the biggest need. And then we've done that for the past few years. And what's actually kind of funny is now it's coming full circle. Now that we've proven the sort of utility product is working very well, now we're actually starting to add back in some of the social elements.
0: It's such an obvious idea. And I say that as a compliment because so many of (laughs) the No, I mean... I thought it was too. (laughs) Look, I still wake up and my son's like, I want to watch Octonauts or PJ Masks or any of these like three-year-old shows. And I ask my wife, say, is this on Netflix? Is this on HBO? Is this on TV? Like, it's just, it's a mess. And so kind of walk me through the rollout of the product for the people who are listening who have never heard of it. How do they find it? In the years since the initial founding, how has it evolved? Kind of give me a little more of the story on how it's been built out.
1: We transitioned from, we had our mobile app and we kept that. And then we also, we launched our website about three years ago. And what we wanted to prove with those two platforms was just that this is something that people want. This is something that people like to use and show retention and growth in those. With the real end goal for us is always to be across all of your devices. So if you think in the same way, you can watch Netflix on your phone, your iPad, your TV, your laptop, whatever, that's kind of the direction that we've always been heading. But we had to start with platforms that we could control, which was obviously mobile and web show success there so that then we could make our way onto the other platforms. And luckily, that proved to be the case. We've had a lot of success with our web product and our mobile apps. And with that, we actually signed a deal with LG last year where we launched on the home screen of every LG TV in the US and a handful of other countries. And We're working with a handful of other TV manufacturers right now, as well as we're working on something that's not launched yet, and I can't say too much about it, but it basically bridges the gap between the phone and the TV a little bit better to make that a more seamless experience.
0: What was the go-to-market education of people? Was it largely a digital outreach? You mentioned the partnerships with some of the TV manufacturers. How did you go from like, hey, we have this cool idea to getting people to use it or getting it implemented? Because I feel like one of the bigger struggles, and I don't know this, would be whether or not some of the manufacturers say, hey, we want to build this, or some of the services try to do it in-house. Was that a roadblock? Tell me a little bit about the implementation and rollout of the actual product.
1: Well, so it actually kind of, it's weirdly come full circle. Because when we first were looking to build this, we went out into the market. Because a big piece of what we do is largely data. It's a relatively simple front-end experience. There's a huge amount of data processing that actually happens on the back end because all the different streaming services have different IDs for what may be the same show or same movie. So the analogy I always give is if you had two identical chairs, one is at West Elm, one's at Crate and Barrel. If both of them have a matching barcode on them and a sales rep in both stores scans them, a computer can just say, Yep, yeah, that's the same chair entered in the system. The problem is, what if you don't have barcodes on those chairs? How does a computer tell that those are the same chair? Well, then it needs to look at the shape of the chair, the dimensions, the weight. And with all those dimensions, no two chairs are actually perfect. So it needs to make confidence scores for all those different variables or different factors and then combine it and to say, yeah, you know what, with 97% confidence, I can say this is the same chair. So that's what our system does with movies and shows, because it's in real time, we support somewhere around 300 different streaming services. So in real time, it's constantly making sure things are accurately matched across all of those. And when we first got into this space, we were just looking for a data provider for that data. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel. The problem we found was the providers of this data, the quality of the data was just not nearly good enough for our product. And it was really hurting our retention And user trust because we would say, hey, this movie's on showtime, and then they'd hit play, and then it wouldn't be, or there would be a new episode of Game of Thrones, and we wouldn't reflect that. So because that was having such a negative impact, we did a big project where we said, look, our current data providers aren't working. Who else is there in the market? We did a big quality check of all the different providers. We ended up going with one, which actually we later acquired about a year and a half ago, and then Beyond that, we had built a bunch of stuff on top of even the data provider that we were using because it didn't have the quality that we needed. so that was something that we just purely built out of necessity for the product that we were looking to build. and then strangely, what's kind of come full circle is now pretty much every player in the space actually licenses that data from us because some of them have spent five, seven, eight years trying to perfect the data and they haven't been able to really crack it so a weird kind of other side of our business is actually we do license this data to other people that are trying to build things in this space.
0: That seems like a interesting part of the moat over time would be that idea. And maybe describe in a little more detail to the listeners who are interested in this, what the exact sort of features are and how they use this product. So let's say they have an LG TV, or they want to download the app, just kind of walk through what the main use cases are for people? Because I can think of two big ones, but would love to hear it from your mouth.
1: Even just walking through the flow, whether you go to realgood.com, our website, or you use one of our apps, either on a TV or on your phone, the way that onboarding looks is it's pretty simple. We just show you a list of the streaming services. All you have to do is check off the boxes of the services that you use. You don't have to worry about logging in with us because we have all our own metadata to present that. So you simply check off, you know, I have these five different streaming services and then it basically takes you to now your personalized home screen where it has all the shows and movies blended together from all of those services so it's sort of your personal massive catalog of content that any all of it is you just click play on and it will start to watch and so with that then yeah like i said kind of the three main things are one we have all the next episodes of any shows you're watching queued up for you two if you don't know what you want to watch and you want to browse instead of having to flip between five different apps to see five different catalogs. You can browse all of that through us. And we have Rotten Tomato scores and IMDb scores, and you can pick a genre. So you can kind of splice and dice it to really find your best piece of content. We also have a recommendation system that will help you find new content. And then lastly is if you know you want to watch something and you don't know where it's available, like I said, we tell you either A, it's available to you and here's where it is, or no, it's not. It's on this streaming service or it's rent or buy, and here's how you can watch it.
0: And what do you see as sort of the main use case that consumers are using this for? Is it like 90% for discovery? Is it mostly for finding the shows they already care about? Do you have any kind of general takeaways?
1: Honestly, it's it's a healthy mix kind of of those three different ones. I would say like the most casual user just uses it to say, oh, there's something they want to watch and they want to know where they can watch it. And then you go to our more heavy users and like they have all of their shows tracked through us and they like to get the notifications when you know a new episode comes out or if they track a movie and then we tell them like if there's a movie that's in theaters right now you can track it and then we'll notify you if it comes to one of your services so it's largely where can i watch and what can i watch are basically the two main use cases that we see our users use it for
0: I feel like I was looking at it this week. And I think the cool part is you can kind of sort by IMDb or you mentioned Rotten Tomatoes for some interesting ideas. And it kind of eliminates the old wandering around the blockbuster for two hours when you used to rent movies or scrolling through Netflix for an hour to find something decent, which is pretty cool. But I was laughing because I think like Contagion was one of the (laughs) the number one thing people were watching. So, Consumers have a funny sense of humor, dark sense of humor. I'm not sure which. You mentioned acquisition. Can you talk about that at all, what the process was around that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we had been customers of this data provider for a couple of years. And luckily, the guys were actually in San Francisco, the co-founders. So, you know, I just got to know them a little bit over the years. And at a certain point, it made sense for us to bring it in-house because, like I said, we built a lot of technical stuff kind of on top of what they were providing and we realized it would be a lot easier to plug that in if we could control the pipe itself and we apply fixes to it and update that it would make our life easier as a whole so that was what led us to buy it and yeah i mean i spoke to the founders about it it was all in it did take probably six months it was a pretty big time suck admittedly but it's been really helpful to have it in-house and then to i mean We largely got it for the technical stuff that we wanted to do. And then, but then the icing on top was it did come with a book of customers.
0: So you're five years into this, a lot of the tech is built. What is sort of the challenges for the company at this point? Maybe describe, you said you guys got some new offices, maybe what's the head count? And then what's kind of is the main initiative at this point? trying to monetize is it growth of users kind of where are you in the life cycle of the company
1: we're primarily focused on the consumer product and the growth of that so it's been growing really nicely to date it's to a certain extent keeping up with that as well as addressing our users kind of wants and concerns and like largely that is they want to use us on other platforms so that's been a big focus for us recently like a good chunk of last year was building out our TV products and we were many years behind on it, but we finally just launched our Android mobile app because we had a huge amount of demand from our users for that. to even just things like the, like I said, some of the social features like ratings and reviews and those types of things that our users have wanted. So it's been building those into the product and just basically enhancing it, making it a better product and always growing it and increasing retention and engagement.
0: To the extent you're willing to talk about it, what's sort of the vision for monetization? Because I believe for the most part, it's a free service for the end consumer right now. How do you kind of envision the way the company pays the bills and, and grows over time?
1: Like I said, primary focus being the user, but at a certain point, you do need to keep the lights on. So right now, I mean, we do make revenue by licensing our data, some of the data that we've built for our product. So we license that to like Microsoft and Roku and pretty much most of the players in the space. But the longer-term view is probably a combination of, one, at an aggregate at a high level, we have a lot of information about what are people doing in the streaming space. And we have hedge funds that license that data from us, and that's relatively nascent right now, but we've had a lot of inbound interest in that. So that's where we see there being a basically a large amount of revenue. And we actually recently had the global head of measurement from Nielsen who had been there for 14 years recently joined us because Nielsen historically has made, I think they make somewhere about seven, eight billion dollars a year from their viewership data, which is basically what are people wow. watching on live TV? Yeah, I mean, some of these contracts, I guess I can't say who it is, but one of the like networks, they have a billion and a half dollar contract, a three year. So it's half a billion dollar a year contract with Nielsen, just because they need to know how are all of their shows and movies performing in the live TV world. Whereas the problem is they're not very set up for this shift that's happening where viewing is shifting away from live towards on-demand over the internet viewing, and they don't really have any way to capture that. Whereas with us, just by the nature of our product, by people using it, we do end up seeing what people are watching across different services, and that's how you see our like, contagion. We're seeing the viewership of our viewers, and it's like, okay, that's popular, so that fills our popular row. So that's what, like I said, we had an increasing number of hedge funds reaching out, looking to get this information. So we started to package that up. And that's what the Nielsen guy, like I said, he saw at Nielsen, they weren't really adapting with the time. So he went to the market and tried to find who he thought would be that kind of future of this data and sought us out. And like I said, we ended up bringing him on board. So I think that that's going to be a growing piece of our revenue business, as well as we may. I mean, I worked on the ad products at Facebook. We may at some point try to do some very unobtrusive ads within the product itself, but that's years away.
0: Does Nielsen fall under the umbrella of competitor? Are there direct competitors at this point who's trying to elbow you guys out? Because it seems like a, like when you mentioned Nielsen, it seems like a very large opportunity. Who else is in the game? Anybody?
1: they're definitely the big one i mean they're kind of the name brand I and mean, have been for a long time so i'd say there's by far the biggest i'm trying to think of any there's a few others in the space no one that we've seen that and when i say in the space i mean largely around live tv viewership there hasn't really been anyone that's done the on-demand viewership nielsen has tried and from what i understand they have like a very very small panel And I've actually heard from customers that for some of the providers of this data in the space that are trying to provide data around the on-demand, they'll say, here's the viewership on one of the streaming services. And then they look at the data and it shows viewership for shows and movies that have never even actually been on that streaming service. So there's some pretty big flaws with, you know, it's a small sample size and flaws with some of the other providers in the space.
0: When you say streaming, does this include Outside the normal big ones, does this include YouTube or podcasting or anything else yet? Or is it mainly just confined to the HBOs and Netflixes of the world?
1: So right now, yeah, we only support the kind of the breakdown is TV shows and movies. So that's what when when we say like TV shows, I mean, you know, like a show with multiple episodes and movies obviously being self-explanatory. So we only handle those. I mean, again, even with that, there's that includes to give all the industry lingo, you know, there's like. TVOD, basically the pay, the rent or buy services, there's the subscription services, and now AVOD, the advertise, the streaming services like Tubi with ads in them. Those are growing in a huge way right now. So we support all the three of those. And we do hope to expand sometime in the next probably year or so to some other types of content, like especially, but it would largely be, like you said, YouTube uh, or short form content, because obviously I think thinking, that viewers are only watching shows and movies, is that's obviously not the case. You know, they're watching shows and movies, but they're also watching TikTok and whatever influencer they follow on YouTube.
0: You get to hear my rant that I've been on ranting for like three years is that all the streaming services, but also almost any app you have on your phone allows you to rate them. So you can rate your Uber driver, you can rate your Uber app, you could rate Netflix shows, you can rate anything. But as a podcast, host and consumer, nothing drives me crazier than the fact that none of the dozen or two dozen podcast apps, including Apple, they let you rate the show, but not the episodes. And so it drives me absolutely batty because like many hosts, this is going to be an amazing episode, five star for sure. But there are episodes I have that maybe are two or three and certainly a gazillion others. And it was an idea that for a long time, we'd considered doing is an app. But the problem is it seems more of a feature than an actual full company. So you ever want to start getting into the podcast rating app world when you guys got some extra engineers that want to work on a Saturday night, let me know because it drives me crazy where the podcast world seems to have transitioned from the early days. It was all about discovery. You had to find a new show, but most people now already have 10, 20, 30 podcasts they listen to so being able to curate seems like a, a more obvious expansion. Anyway, maybe something to think about.
1: I mean, I would love that just as a, as a podcast user, too. And actually, that's why just yesterday we even we launched episode-level rating, at least for shows. Because you're right. It's like if you think about it when you talk with your friends, you'll say, oh, the first two seasons were really good, and then it really fell off. But Short of your friend, you don't have any way of knowing that.
0: And also it varies. Like, It may not make as much sense for, say, Game of Thrones, but if it's like a cooking show or you're doing David Letterman interviews, it makes a ton of sense because you're saying, and I've actually, the one that has worked has been, and it's the most basic because all it lets you do is like a star or a like is Breaker allows you to, but the actual signaling that, as basic as it is, that you can sort the episodes by that, is actually extremely high. Anyway, unrelated to most of the things we're talking about, but it's our poor listeners have heard me rant about this over the years. But if anyone wants to build it, let me know. I'll help fund it. All right. So, we're in 2020. It's a new decade. We're starting to look out on the horizon. Put on your forecasting hat, your crystal ball. What's the evolution of this world look like in a year, in three years, five years, streaming as people cut more and more cords, as more and more companies like Disney have these siloed offerings? What's your general commentary on the space?
1: We've admittedly been very lucky. There's obviously been a huge amount of blood, sweat, and tears and a million late nights, as you can imagine, but we've also been lucky with the direction the space has gone. The big bet that we made was that the space was fragmented, And it's going to continue to get more fragmented. And luckily, over the past year or two, that's happened a lot. As you mentioned, Disney pulling their stuff from the other services to have Disney Plus and Apple TV launching their service and with NBC's coming out with Peacock and they're pulling friends to bring to their services and HBO Max from Warner Media. So all the the heavy hitters are entering the space as well. So all that to say, it's good for us. That was kind of the bet that we made. And now with the big dog's, doing it the space is getting more fragmented which obviously we just become more and more useful and i think with that there's a more fragmentation and b there's just the data showing that people are starting to make the shift away from their live tv and their cable subscription and more and more people are moving towards this on-demand world and it's i mean i think really it's just a little bit of history repeating itself like if you think about the history of television when tvs first came out there was just three channels that was very easy. You switch between them, you're fine. But then more and more and more channels came out and it got to a point it was overwhelming for people and confusing. And there needed to be a guide to help people figure out what to watch. This is kind of the same thing, but with the internet. It's simply, you know, TV's moving to the internet. There was just Netflix and I don't know, maybe Hulu or Showtime, like there was just sort of the few big providers, but now it's basically again the equivalent of having a lot of different channels or a lot of different streaming services and I think I saw a stat a few months back and I think it's the average household in the US uses five streaming services. So I mean, and I think they were careful to say uses because obviously there's a lot of password sharing going on, but that's how many the average house is actually using. And I think we've just seen, I mean, that number a year or two ago was I think it was two and a half. So it's like nearly doubled over the past year or two. So I think that's going to continue to ratchet up and one kind of just random interesting thing that's happened for us is the majority of our users are I say around 18 to 35 and then there's a bit of a gap and then we have users kind of in their 60s and 70s which are people that are they're making the shift like they see the opportunity or they like their on-demand services but they find it too confusing and that's what's Hurting their transition away from cable is just too confusing. So weirdly, we've had this slightly older demographic that are real good users because they find it just makes it a lot easier for them to understand. And, you know, it's one single interface as opposed to five.
0: These youngins don't know how easy they got it. When we used to have to get up when we were kids and change the channel or even use a remote or watch SportsCenter four times in a row, they got it easy. Obviously, we would never wish a global pandemic on everyone. I imagine the adoption and acceleration of the changes going on in this world. Have you guys seen an increase in people using the various services as most people are kind of working and stuck at home?
1: Yes, is the short answer. I mean, it's obviously a very scary and weird time. And it feels weird that we're luckily doing well as part of this when I see other startups and other people I know struggling. So there's like a weird certain amount of guilt to it. But the honest truth is, yeah, we've been exploding since the lockdown happened. It's just we've been struggling to keep up with it. And interesting trends, too, that we're seeing in some of the viewership, just looking at our own data. I saw something one of our data analysts pulled up the other day, which was, it's unsurprising, but kids' content, it's up, I think, 50% from the week before, or maybe even more. There's a huge jump in it. It's higher than Christmas time in terms of kids' content being watched, which is no surprise. I mean, that's what I'm seeing in my house, right? Like my wife and I trading off with our kid because we don't have the nanny. Well, Papa Pig does become the babysitter sometimes.
0: Well, it's funny because you saw these at the beginning of the quarantine a lot of people posting, hey, I'm going to approach this like summer camp. And so 8 a.m. to 9 is breakfast and then play in the park and then art time. And then gradually it's just like stream time. (laughs) It's just like my sanity. Go watch TV, child. I got to do what it takes to get through this. So is most of the team remote now as far as how is managing y'all's company In this time, is it proven pretty seamless because it's something you guys do already? Or is it has this been an interesting wrinkle for the past month?
1: So we are quite lucky where two-thirds of our team is distributed. And yeah, so we have an office in San Francisco, an office in Quito, Ecuador, and another in Victoria, British Columbia. And those are the main spots where we have people. And then we also have a couple in Australia and one in well, he's usually in Amsterdam. He's in Ireland right now. And then we also have some people in the Philippines. So we are quite used to being a remote company. I mean, I do miss the, there are the pockets like in Victoria and here and Ecuador, where it is nice to be able to work in person with those people, but it's actually been a pretty seamless transition. I'd say if anything more, it's just weird, like conferences that we were scheduled to speak at, those have all been canceled. And some of those are good sales opportunities and just transitioning to meetings that would have been in person, you know, when you're talking to a potential client or an investor or whoever it may be i always just strong preference for meeting in person and obviously now that's all just done over video chat but actually even yesterday i mean we had i had my first virtual board meeting you know, we'd be meeting in person for five years and then we did first one all online yesterday. And one of the investors, you know, his kid was coming in and hugging him in the middle of it. But like, it actually went really great. It was a lot more seamless than uh, I thought it was.
0: Yeah, I think any of the stigma associated with working from home really started to end when that guy was on TV and his daughter ran in and then the nanny, then the mom. <laughs> I feel like everyone, once everyone's been through it, although you see a lot of, funny zoom videos from teams where people seem to forget that they're on camera and half are walking around naked or doing something embarrassing. So people are going to learn quick.
1: I saw one of those worst nightmare things where she was on a conference call with a bunch of her teammates and she walked into the bathroom, put the computer on the ground. I don't think your camera was on. I was like, Oh, that's my worst nightmare.
0: Right now. Yeah, that's funny. Oh, man. What's been some of the challenging parts of this? Being an entrepreneur, we tell people, and this is in the investing world too, I say the biggest compliment you can give someone is just surviving. So the good news is you're still here. And then thriving is gravy. What have some of been the biggest challenges and struggles?
1: I completely agree with you. And something I think about a lot is a founder that I really respect gave me this advice early on, which was survive long enough to get lucky. And that's been kind of my mantra and wow, has that been accurate? Because like, like I said, we were pretty early in the space and there's a graveyard of companies that were in our space that just didn't make it. They ran out of money or they just couldn't figure a way to keep the lights on. And so we weathered those storms and luckily survived to this point where now the market over the past year, the market's just been exploding with, I guess, especially the Disney pluses of the world really being kind of the markers of that. So. Luckily, we've been sitting very pretty for the past good chunk of time. But I mean, historically, there were things even just around fundraising when this was not as hot of a space as it is now. We saw the opportunity and we were making the bet that the space would go the direction it's had. Not everyone necessarily knows that, especially if you're talking to venture funds. And I always say they just got pitched like Uber for cats. And then you're trying to convince them of this whole other market. So there were some trials and tribulations earlier on with that. Like I said, luckily now everyone's well aware of this space and where it's going. But we definitely have had to weather some storms in the earlier years.
0: What's been the most memorable moment? Has there been one you look back, good or bad, where you're just like, wow, that was seared in my brain as something I'll never forget?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have one moment and I try to tell the story just because I think there's a lot of Lore and legend around the startup world of everything is great. You know, you hear about the successes and you don't hear about any of the hardships or the realities of it. Which every founder that I know, we've all weathered storms. I remember once, and this was, this was several years ago, maybe three or more, four years ago. It was after our angel round when we were looking to our seed round. The market a had shifted a lot. Like when I first raised, Facebook was just setting the world on fire with ads, and then Twitter thought they could do the same, but then they weren't hitting kind of the same, basically ad revenue that Facebook was. And that caused a big souring amongst investors around consumer startups, because it used at the time when I first raised, it was like, well, if you have an audience, you can make a ton of money. And then when Twitter didn't quite go as well, they thought, oh, maybe that's not the case. So for our second round, there was a lot less interest around consumer investments, not to mention again we were early in the space and so I mean it was definitely one of those things where I just pitched everyone that would listen to me and we were I was definitely having a hard time with it and there was a point where I was looking at the bank account and was like okay there's the finish line and we're coming up on it pretty fast and I was as you can imagine pretty stressed about it and I remember I went for a walk with my wife just at a park nearby and I just kind of told her, I was like, I don't know if we're going to make it. I think this might be it. I think this might be the last like month or two. And she was really good where she was very level-headed about it. And she said, okay, well, let's think through. Let's look at that scenario. What does failure look like? How do our lives look after that? And talking it through, we realized, okay, we've made a plan. We're like, okay, if we don't pull through this, we're going to go to Thailand for a couple of weeks. We're going to take a vacation. We're going to come back. Like she worked at big tech companies. I had obviously worked at big tech companies. Before, I'm like, okay, worst case scenario, we're going to go back to one of those companies. We're going to get a job there. Everything was good. And there was something about, you know, in your head, you can build these things up just to be like, well, my life is over if this startup fails. Like you just get, you get so tied to it. And I remember that walk so, so vividly because it was looking at failure. And then in that walk, I really like accepted failure and was like, okay, I am comfortable with that. And then it was one of those classic stories where I think it was the next day we got a term sheet. And then all of a sudden, the term sheet started pouring in.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe when it succeeds, you can go to Thailand too. (laughs) Either way, you get to go to Thailand. (laughs) I like that approach. Still trying
1: to get over there, yeah.
0: (laughs) Never really spending time in that part of the world. I need to. What are you watching these days? You got any good recommendations for any favorites, any discoveries on Real Good, whether it's movies, shows, good things for three-year-olds?
1: <laughs> I mean, Peppa Pig can't go wrong. But well, it's actually kind of interesting. I mean, I find this as a consumer, and we're trying to help a lot our really rapidly growing user base right now. Where I don't think, I mean, depending how long this COVID thing goes on for, the studios aren't making new content's not coming down the pipe right now. So, and I think that's you know what we see a lot of viewership is people watch the new stuff that comes out. But in the world where that's might not happen for a while, all of a sudden. People need a little more help digging through the catalogs, existing catalogs, to find good stuff to watch. But purely on my level, it's like a six-episode documentary, Cheer, on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. My wife started watching it. I, oh, I know what you're talking about. It's I know. <laughs> I know, totally, exactly. I've watched it twice now. Totally hooked on that show.
0: That's funny. And then,
1: obviously, the new Westworld. I, we've been so busy because struggling juggling childcare as well as the business has been exploding right now. I haven't. It's just been eat, sleep. Work, childcare, sleep. I hear you, uh, man. But I'm desperately trying to watch the new Westworld.
0: I hear you. That's funny. I, I was like cheer. I don't know what that is. I'm like, oh, that. I think my wife watched the entire thing in like one night, so it's in the oh, queue. Good, man,
1: I'd never think about watching a documentary about cheerleading, but I think the, the person that I did just he's just a very, very good storyteller. Yeah,
0: she said the intentional or not, the casting is exceptional. This has been a blast. Where do people, if they want to track what you're up to personally, as well as Real Good, where do they go? What do they do? How do they find you guys?
1: Yeah, so we're realgood.com, Real Good on the Google Play Store and on their iPhones. We're coming to more TVs, so keep updated that. If you sign up for an account on Real Good, we'll keep you updated on all those things. But those are the main ways. For myself, I'm very bad, but I don't really do much social media. So kind of just following real good and us in the news is probably the best way.
0: Oh cool, man, David, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me on podcast. Listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at Mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the MebFavorshow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere. Good podcasts are found. My current favorite is breaker. Thanks for listening friends and good investing.